This is another episode of Dear Analyst, and in this episode, I'm super excited to have Sean Taylor, the Chief Scientist and Co-Founder at Motif Analytics, talk all about his background and some really interesting projects that he's worked on in his career and also what he's currently doing at uh, Motif Analytics. So Sean, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So for starters, do you want to give a quick introduction to the audience about your background and where you've worked? Yeah, I can, I'll try to keep it quick, but I'm, I am quite old now. So racking up years <laughs> in various places, but I, I, I have business background. So I, I did an undergrad at Wharton and, and then I have spent a bunch of time in anal analytics roles, data science roles after that. But, but in between I did my PhD. So I did a PhD in information systems at Stern and NYU. And actually I was training to be a business school professor for a long time. So I was planning to teach kind of analytics and data science was becoming a thing around that time. But then I got a job at Facebook, actually an internship at Facebook during my PhD. And that's kind of what got me into the, into the data world. We had a, it was not even called a data science team at the time. It was called the data team. <laughs> And, and that was it. All the data scientists, data engineers, everybody was on the team. And after Facebook, I went on and worked at Lyft for a few years. And then just about a year ago, I helped co-found this company called Motif Analytics. And that's what I've been doing for the last year is trying to, trying to build tools rather than, you know, actually solve the problems myself. <laughs> Interesting. So you went from wanting to be a business school data analytics professor to just jumping into the industry. What was that uh, transition like? Was it something that you thought about a lot or was it like, oh no, this is definitely what I want to do with my career? I think that when I, being in a PhD student is a very lonely life. You spend a lot of your time in a, you mm -hmm. know, working on something by yourself and you have no scale mm -hmm. and you don't have a lot of data. So you're sort of like curious about the world. You want to make a splash, but you don't have a lot of people to work with. You don't have a lot of tools to do it. It was fun because no one ever bugged me and I got to learn and teach myself whatever I wanted. But then when I went to intern at Facebook and do an internship on the data team, I was, I was learning so much faster than I was in my PhD. I was, wow, this is like, what a great environment for picking up new skills and, and, and like just learning from really smart people. And it just felt like industry was so much faster feedback loop. And so I just felt like, wow, if I can get an offer to work here and be around all these smart people all the time, I should take it. Right. Makes sense. So moving on to your experience at Lyft, I understand that you worked on this cohort analysis project. And I'm, as a consumer, I'm a, I love using Lyft and really curious to know what this project involved, what were some of the problems or questions you were trying to answer, and overall what was kind of like the results of the project, if you can share anything. Yeah, it's kind of, that project is a good, a good segue from my time at Facebook where I since I have this academic background, I worked on a lot of research projects at, at Facebook that were like, you know, not really intended to, to be, you know, benefit directly to some product team. You know, we, we were trying to solve really general problems. And when I got to Lyft, we had a lot, I, I ended up joining a team called Revenue Ops Science. And so the, that team was meant to sort of help run the business is the way we called it. And so that meant managing the marketplaces by having adequate supply and demand. So growth was a really big Part of that, so growth of drivers and growth of riders is really fundamental to a marketplace because you have to have liquidity on both sides of the market. And one important tool for, for managing markets is just forecasts. So how many riders and ride requests are we going to get in the next week or you know in, a, in the next quarter? And can we plan to have enough drivers to, to meet the needs of all those people? Mm -hmm. And I was a little surprised by this, but the best methodology at the time when I arrived was this cohort methodology 
So what, the, and it's, I think a lot of companies build forecasts this way, but it was new to me, which is that like, essentially every user belongs to a cohort based on the day that they sign up for the app or actually at Lyft, it's their, the time they take their first ride. And then we have like, what's called a liquidation curve, or there's a cohort curve, which is like how many rides that they'll take at every week after their, their, their first ride. And those curves kind of go off into affinity, but they, you know, they start really high and they kind of end up hugging the X axis because eventually everybody on average stops running, you know, using the product. And if you have a curve like that for every cohort and you know how many people are joining at each cohort, then you can construct a forecast from that. And, and that forecast was actually a state-of-the-art forecasting forecast at Lyft. And it was very hard, hard to beat it with time series models. Very interesting. It's just sort of like a little trick of decomposing it into two problems instead of just trying to forecast total rides is actually better than forecasting rides on its own. And so we spent a lot of time trying to get, get do better than that by like adding some seasonality to that and trying to kind of create better forecasts. And there's, there's a blog post about it that you could probably look up. And I think a lot of ways that like the tool itself was also useful because it provides like an insight into like why you might be having lower ride, lower rides. And it's because the cohort curves kind of shift over time and the earlier users kind of are more eager to use the product. They're a little stickier. So their cohort curves decay a little slower. And then it, when you end up with like softer users who like, you know, maybe they're not as interested in the product or they have other options because they joined Lyft really late their cohort curves are different. And so there's a lot of insights to be extracted by just looking region by region and cohort by cohort at these curves and trying to understand, you know, what, what's happening and why are these cohorts different than the earlier cohorts? Interesting. Can you, can you speak to any variables or factors that led to the, is it the liquidation curve you said? Yeah, this, yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious, like what were some of the biggest impacts that would lead to the liquidation curve shifting. You mentioned when the first per, when the person first books their first ride. So I'm guessing there's like promotions and stuff that are part of that. But I'm curious if there's any other, you know, events that would really cause a major shift in the curve. Well the, the curves are meant to model like the average person in the cohort. So you kind of lump them all together. Mm-hmm. So that, so they they some of them have been exposed and received coupons. Some of them have you know been exposed to prime time and things like that. But it's not included in this model. Actually, that's kind of what's amazing about this model is it's so simplified and yet works so well. <laughs> but that's actually one of the big flaws in the model in a lot of ways is that there's the marketplaces are not static things and they vary over time. And in particular, like rider experiences can vary week to week. Like one one week we uh, had very few drivers, so we had to use prime time a lot, and the prices would would shoot up. And then those those riders would be like would be less likely to take take rides in the future. And uh, exposure to high prices is a, is a really big cause of churn from the product. And it's not included in that model at all, but the model did seem to work well. And, and a lot of the work that we did over the next few years that I was at Lyft was to try to build a kind of richer model than that, that incorporated more factors like that, including mm-hmm. potentially uh, pricing changes. And so we spent a really long time trying to build a more sophisticated version of that model. We called it Grail because like the holy grail of analytics was to be able to model like things like the you know weather conditions, whether we were planning to increase prices per ride, whether we were going to be running coupons or discounts in the next week and using those to kind of enrich the forecast and create like a more detailed assessment of like where we would be under different scenarios. Interesting. Cool. And I guess this kind of goes into the next topic, which is this concept that I'm not sure if it's something you just coined or something you've been talking about for a long time, which is this concept of hidden analytics. And it's this notion that, you know, you're sifting through all this data and trying to 
uncover the the root cause for a problem and then all of a sudden you find kind of like the trend or the key data point that tells you hey this is the answer to our problem curious how you like kind of started exercising that muscle what are examples of this happening throughout your career of this this notion of hidden analytics yeah i think that like there's it's something i've been thinking about a lot because there's a lot of work in analytics that's not formalized sort of like we just expect people to know a lot about the business but we don't really like kind of and and they're expected to be able to answer questions and be able to provide some guidance but it's not like it's not a thing where you block your calendar for like 4 hours to like understand the business better better once a week it's just something that you you tend to accumulate but that but you accumulate it through doing like like little analytics projects, like trying to understand something and, sh- and sharing and talking to people in your organization. So there's this kind of like community of knowledge building that we're doing within companies that is very similar to what I come from in the academic world of like, you know, curiosity driven work, trying to understand something fundamental about the business and ultimately generating ideas to make improvements or to kind of make suggestions that are that that aren't really motivated by someone that, that tells you to do something. Maybe you come up with your own kind of suggestion of your own. And my, my favorite examples of these are always things that were broken that people noticed after being curious. It's, it's almost always like the, the biggest fixes or the the biggest wins tend to come from fixing something that's broken rather than from like having some genius idea about how to improve the product. And my favorite example is this guy I worked with at Lyft. He he found a bug that was very, very subtle. And I, I still to this day don't have no idea how he ended up looking at this data, this log data for how we were dispersing these, we were dispersing rider, driver incentives. So we give drivers incentives. They, they make more money to, to drive in, in times when we need more supply. And we, we had made a mistake in the code and we're like dispersing like way more incentives than we should be. And the, and the drivers were making like a lot more money. And he, and he figured this out and it's like fixing the bug saved us like, I think something like $15 million a year. <laughs> wow. And it's just one of these things where like, if you, if you, if he had never spotted that bug, then like Lyft like makes $15 billion fewer because, because of that. And it's, and it's like little things like that add up to a lot of value. And they're not like big hero projects where you write a big spec in advance and say, here's what we're going to do. And here's the plan. It's just somebody being curious and finding something in the data. Interesting. So he just found this bug, realized your team was paying, giving out too many incentives to drivers and then it was pushed to production and then all of a sudden Lyft saves $15 million a year. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm oversimplifying a bit because it wasn't one of those bugs you could catch from like a time series plot of like spend or something. There was, there was some way in which it was obfuscated, but and that, that's what makes it even more interesting to me is like that you wouldn't have spotted it from a dashboard, but it's, you know, you just become grateful for having people that are curious enough to, to work on problems like that and just get like, Hey, I, I want to keep looking at this system and try to understand how it works. And it's, it's very, very reminiscent to me of the scientific process of people just being curious about the world. <laughs> And how it works, and then like spotting things because they're willing to to do these deep dives. I guess from the um, other other side, like, have you ever worked on a project that where you know someone told you to work on this project? Maybe it's the forecasting model, and as you're doing explorations, you're curious. Like, did you happen to come across anything interesting that could have saved the company time, you know, money, any, anything along those lines? Yeah, I mean. To be honest with you, I don't have one of those signature wins myself like that. I I, I kind of wish I did because I do lots of little analyses like that. And I think I've learned a lot of really interesting things and they, but they usually tend to be on the more subtle side, like not just like, oh, you flipped a switch and 
yeah. and do this thing. And then every, and then everybody makes more money. But one of the ones that I, I worked on for quite a while at Lyft was a, was a kind of like subtle one, which was that we, Lyft has a very important problem, which is to estimate the time that it will take a driver to get to you and then use that to figure out how to dispatch, which driver they should dispatch to you. And then there's another key input to that, which is like, instead of trying to minimize the time that drivers spend driving to pick people up, you can minimize the probability of them like declining the ride in that time period. So it's like, you know, for, for every minute you wait, you have some probability of just saying like, I'm not going to take this ride and I'm going to bail. So you can actually maximize mm -hmm. rides instead of minimize time spent driving. And it turned out that the machine learning models we were building to, to estimate that probability had a subtle bias in them that I was able to uncover. And it's for a really interesting reason is because Lyft typically dispatches the, the closest driver. And so we only had training data from a certain like kind of biased set of examples. So we really didn't know the counterfactual of like if we had dispatched like a slightly further away driver, <laughs> if a rider would be patient enough to wait. And so when you corrected the machine learning model for that bias, you found that uh, riders are actually a little bit more patient than we thought they were and that we could, we could, you know, a, a marketplace like that can get a lot of flexibility from being a little patient and like letting a driver wait a minute or two. And then maybe another rider makes a request closer to the driver. So that the, the patient sort of like pays off in terms of being able to buy a little bit of flexibility. So, so little findings like that require kind of careful study, but, but typically in those cases, like, you know what the problem is because it's such a well understood problem at a big marketplace like that. Mm, okay. Interesting. So, so you're saying the the driver would actually wait a little longer or what to get the rider to book the ride or was it the other way around? I'm sorry. Lyft, Lyft would just like, we would just not dispatch a driver immediately, even though, even Got though okay. say there's like a rider, like eight minutes away. Well, if you wait like a couple minutes, then there could be a, a, a rider four minutes away. <laughs> and so, you know, prematurely dispatching that driver actually adds up to like, you know, waste in some ways. So there, so there's right. like all these little trade-offs you, you want to make actually running a marketplace is all about trade-offs because you usually have to take a ride away from somebody to give it to someone else. <laughs> right. But, but those things do add up to a lot of value when you get the trade-offs right. And the, so a lot of the projects I worked on there were about like estimating those trade-offs really precisely, which is, which is a tough thing to do, but there's not like a hero, a hero moment where you found a big bug and <laughs> doesn't yeah. happen as often. I, I guess kind of to to close out the, your experience at Lyft, you, you mentioned the Im improving the forecasting model to something called Grail. Was the Grail ever reached, or was that still in development? So that that project continues, uh, and some of the folks that I worked with uh, at Lyft continue to work on it. And it's kind of a key piece of the plan, the market planning architecture at, at Lyft, which is to like every week you have this planning process of like you know, we need to make a plan for how many, how much we're going to spend on driver incentives, how much we're going to spend on rider incentives, how much we're mm -hmm. going to, how, whether we're going to change prices in any way or not. And that planning process has to happen for like hundreds of markets across the US. And that model is is what's powering a lot of the, you know, the scenario planning that goes into that. So you you say like, oh, there's going to be like a, like a blizzard in this place and blizzards typically de depress volume. And so we want to shut off the <laughs> shut off the driver incentives for that week. And, you know, things like that add up to a lot of value, that kind of operations work that's powered by statistical models. 
Very cool. I, I have so much more excitement now for the next time I use Lyft. <laughs> now knowing a little bit about the inner workings. Oh my God. The number of things that have to go right for like that driver to show up and pick you up is like, it's, it's an enormous undertaking to get it all to work. It's kind of amazing. Like there's yeah. things that happened like months ago, like some had onboard the driver like six months ago. So that that driver was there to pick you up. It's, it's an, it's an orchestra. <laughs> yeah. I'm really curious like what my liquidation curve now looks like. And <laughs> I don't know, just, <laughs> right. yeah. Well, kind of shifting gears a little bit and moving on to more general topic, user journeys, something that I know you're really passionate about. Can you tell us more about what user journeys are and how you worked on these type of projects? Yeah. So I think that like a lot of this is motivated by trying to create uh, a, like a richer portrait of what is happening in our products. And we when we when we count things and aggregate them, we discard a lot of really important information that like and we know we knowingly do it because it's easy. It, it helps us quickly get to answers that are useful. But we 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 don't keep track of like all the states that users flow through while they're using products. And products are getting increasingly dated. Uh and and like those kind of simple funnels where a user steps through like one or two things and signs up, like are are not that interesting and we don't work on them anywhere. We tend to gravitate toward more challenging analytical work. And so one of the frameworks I've been using and what we're building toward at Motif is to think about these things as like as little user journeys through different phases of your product. Like whether sign up is one and it's an important one, but there's, you know, setting up accounts or, you know, setting up billing or like if you get to a certain feature, do you use that feature in a way that gets you a good result? And so like when you think about your usage of a product for like an hour, there's many stories baked into that. And each one of them is kind of like a little mini success or failure for you as a user. So when you apply that lens, it kind of, it's like a, people think about sessionization a lot and sessionizing and making sure that you don't like you analyze a user's session, but there's micro sessions within a session of like little mini experiences. And, And so when we can start to analyze those things, I think we can start to do a better job of evaluating whether our products are successful and meeting our users' needs and, and kind of helping users accomplish the, the, goal, the goals that they have. And so, and it requires thinking about event level data. That's kind of the, the punchline is that you, you can't aggregate data and still tell these stories because once you aggregate it, like all the, all the steps that users took along the way have been discarded already. Yeah. Uh, just to dig a little deeper into this, can you um, perhaps give an example, maybe uh, using Lyft as an example of like, what's an example of a general you know, we're trying to aggregate all this data. We're doing a regular, like, you know, count SQL statement that aggregates a certain amount of data. And yeah. I'm curious what you mean when you say what a session or micro session is like in Lyft that traditionally is not thought about, not thought as something that you would count or aggregate. That's like what you're trying to solve for. Yeah. Curious, like what that, what, just give me more of a concrete example of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good it's a good call. I I tend to like since I'm an academic, I do this like abstract thing all the time. But <laughs> let's the so at Lyft, we could think of a conversion rate for a ride. So a, a user requests a ride, and then we have success or failure if they take the ride. And we can make a dashboard, and there are dashboards at Lyft that look like this, where it's like conversion rate on rides, and so you know it'll it'll have a rate, and it'll kind of vary over time and by market conditions. And the problem is that you need to know why the rider didn't take the ride. And because it doesn't just knowing that the conversion rate went down isn't enough to provide any real useful information to you. It could be it could be for a variety of reasons. So the user journey framing of this is like take a think about all the steps that a user has to go through to request a ride. And it's like a set of, you know, 
first I put in a location and there's a, there's a part in the app that allows me to do that. And like, I can fail at that step. Maybe like I opened the app and I, I couldn't find maybe the, the lookup for, for my address was the address wasn't in the address book and I got frustrated and failed on the app. And then there's the like quoted a price part and, and it lifts, you know, there's many steps in quoting a price. Actually, there's like mo- different modes and things like that. And then once you've requested a ride, the driver can be dispatched to you. You can have drivers that are swapped for other drivers. Drivers can cancel on you. And so there's this like branching path of all these stories that can happen to you as a rider from the rider's, rider's perspective that it's hard to make a dashboard that captures all these <laughs> all these states and all these transition probabilities. And so the, the, the journey analysis idea is to try to like try to focus on each one of these little mini funnels within this thing and try to analyze each one and, and decompose an overall rate into you know a rate rates of things that you can really reason about and try to figure out if there's some fix. So if it's like driver cancels, drivers keep canceling, then like maybe we know that those drivers are like bad drivers and they drive they cancel too much and we need to work on getting better drivers that don't cancel as much and it becomes like actionable at that point because we know the why rather than just like some overall rate. Got it. This might be a simplistic way of looking at the this analysis but like when you say there's all these different branches of like what can happen when a user is like trying to book a ride and they get frustrated when they can't put in the address, is this visualization something as simple as like, you know, like like a funnel or waterfall where you have like different rates and depending on what branch you go through, there's another rate of like yes or no, success, failure. Um, yeah. Is that kind of like a, a basic visualization or there, is there something more interesting, probably more what you're working on at Motif that tell a better data story no, I think in a lot of ways, like a like a funnel, like you're describing, is the is this the simplest possible model of a user journey, which is like a linear set of steps that a user gets through, and if they make it through all the steps, then then it's it's success. And and funnels are very useful, and it's something that it's like you know it's a it's a useful tool, but they're they're kind of annoying to build. And okay. and if you and if you want to generalize them into more states, like a, you know, a funnel just has like some countable small number of states into more like branching paths where users can go down, it gets hard and the visualizations get more challenging and the analysis gets more challenging. And so in a lot of ways, what we're trying to do is kind of generalize funnel analysis to try to make it like, so like think about some new step in your, in your user journey. And like, I can quickly spin up a funnel for that. And the funnel can be more general than just like a linear one. And I have really good tools and visualizations for trying to like dissect that process and trying to understand, you know, what the, what the gaps in that process are. Got it. Very cool. I guess just kind of to rounding this out into what led you to wanting to start working on Motif. One thing you mentioned to me when we were first talking was that our, our current tools, and I think you mentioned tools that help us analyze user journeys like Amplitude, Mixed Panel, et cetera. Um, you can do a lot of common tasks in them, but then eventually you might get blocked at certain states. And I'm curious, like what problems you've seen with existing tooling in this user journey space and what how you're trying to you know address those problems and make something for yourself. Yeah, it's it's so first of all, I'm not like a heavy user of these of these competing products exactly. Mm-hmm. So I, I have used Mixpanel quite a bit, but I have not used Amplitude. So I, I probably should because since I, I I think that there's some overlap in capabilities, but I but I, I think that in general what we the way we view things is like there's a there's a trade-off in analytics world between 
usability and like maybe that's correlated with like democratization or making things easy for a lot of people to use. And then this concept of we we call it motif expressivity, which is like is the is the user able to express the question that they have within that system and get an answer that makes sense. And and there's very expressive tools out there. Like in notebooks are very expressive, right? I can write like arbitrary code and get any answer that I want because it can it can express anything. But the usability is is poor because you can't just hand that off to somebody to, to do it on their own. You need an expert to be able to use it. And a lot of the motif strategy is to kind of try to fall somewhere in between where we trade these things off really well. And we think about, okay, like it needs to be expressive for this like set of questions, which typically are these like these user journey types of analyses. We know what kind of mm-hmm. analysis the user is going to be doing. We're not going to build like like a like a wizard type GUI to step through how to do this analysis. We're going to give the user powerful tools for doing that, but it's not going to be as hard to do this as it would have been in a notebook or in SQL, which is like a you know like actually doing a funnel in SQL can be very very challenging, and it's like the baseline that we often fall back to. And so we show people how to do it in Motif, and they're like, oh my god, this is like this would have been like a hundred times as much code <laughs> to get this get to this answer. So that's a win for us in terms of uh, usability. And then there's the thing where like we 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 can win against these GUI based tools when you look at them and say like I just can't do this in this tool. I get stuck. And, and the tool just can't express the thing that I need it to do, or I can't figure out how to do it because they built some weird GUI that isn't like, you know, isn't something that I can figure out. So we're trying to kind of fall somewhere in between is the, is the real strategy. <laughs> Got it. Do you, do you think that's also a result of perhaps of data analysts, business analysts wanting to be able to, in your words, express themselves better and not necessarily want to like use SQL or notebooks, but having a different way of like trying to ask a question and get the answer. Yeah, I I do think that people, there's a large set of analysts that are curious about new tools and willing to try new things. And those are the people that we want to talk to right now because our tool is new and it's something that it's a new way of thinking about analyzing data. It's, It's much more similar to like analyzing, like or working with strings in a programming language than it is to work to working with tables in SQL. And it's, you know, our, our language is really based off of regular expressions, which is, and it has this pattern matching co- concept in it. But I think like w- once you, once you start adopting that mental model, a lot of the questions become, they start to, they start to feel easier. <laughs> like it starts to feel like, instead of saying like, I could do that, but I'd have to like look up a bunch of code or have ChatGPT generate the query for me and figure out, I can actually just write the query myself and get the answer that I wanted. And that getting that feedback loop to the point where people start start viewing things as like, not only it's not, not just possible, but it's like, it's, it's very low friction for me to do this. It creates a curiosity loop for people. Like I can, I can ask that follow-up question and I can like make this modification that enriches the analysis a little faster. And so I do, I do think tools shape the way we think a lot. And I, I hope that people are open-minded about tools to the extent that they work with the systems that they have in place, because it's the big bet that we made as a company is that like a new way of thinking about this problem will be really valuable to, to people. Got it. Yeah. I think um, a lot of tools, not just in the data space, but in other realms where you're trying to give some expressivity and abstract certain things away from the the analyst or the user. Um, one thing that they also say is that like, oh, but if you want to, you can go deep into the code and you can go deep into, you know, using a notebook or writing SQL. Do you have that same kind of pattern with Motif where it's like, you know, we're giving you a little bit of an abstraction, but you can still get down into the, the code if you want to. 
in some cases, yes. Yeah. So like our plotting, for instance, we we built some like backdoor where you can, you know, do kind of pretty arbitrary plotting if you want to, but it's very low level. But I I I think we're taking a more opinionated view. You know, one 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 project I take a lot of inspiration from is like Ruby on Rails is like was really popular when I was getting into web development. Yep. And they, they're opinionated, right? And they're very explicit about it. It's like, this is the way to build a web app. And we've built a lot of them. So you should do it this way. <laughs> and but, but but it's a programming language. So you can do a lot of stuff in it and work around the limitations of it if, if you want to. Um, and But that opinionated view is something that I think we're we're taking as well. We, and the, the back doors or the ability to kind of override it, it mainly comes in our case from the fact that our, our system operates on top of columnar storage. So you can like you can use our language and our our tool to build like tables, and those tables could be used in some downstream thing, and they consume tables the same way that like a SQL query does. And and so like we we make the same underlying storage assumption that all the other tools do. We just you know the way that you operate on those on the storage is different in our system. We we have a language called the sequence operations language Sol, and that language is a chainable like very fluid programming language like built into our environment and and it's meant to facilitate like really fast interactive programming for for asking and answering analytics questions and so i hope the hope is that people don't need to use too many backdoors to get what they need because we've thought really hard about the stuff that they're going to need to do in advance got it yeah and i guess going back to your ruby on rails example it's like once rails came out with the, the framework of web development it's like you know you have all these like rails developers then all the tools after that are kind of like influenced by what Rails has built, right? So I think in, in, in terms of what you're trying to do, hopefully you can change the way that other tools think about like what you provide to your users and how you, you allow them to express themselves, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it would be fun if that was the outcome, if people sort of saw the design that we proposed and they liked it enough to to kind of copy ideas or, you know, I, I would view that as a big success if people people thought that way. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're not inventing a totally new thing. There's a there's a there's a statement in SQL kind of underused by people called match recognize. I'm not sure if you ever come across it. No, no. What, what is so that? Match recognize does pattern matching in in SQL, so it's it's very similar in spirit to what we've been building, and it's in some Snowflake has an implementation of it. Not all databases have an implementation of it, but there is a, a standard in SQL for this thing called match recognize. And we did a bunch of research to see like, are people using this? Like, is it possible? And it's like, it's this, it's very hard to use it. So it does the same things that Motif does, but it's just like, no one can no one can figure out how to write <laughs> write queries and successfully use it. And so like. That that opinionated part of it is part of it is like making problems that are like, I call it like the difference between possible and probable. <laughs> like it's possible to do it in this other system, but is it probable that you will? It's like, no, 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 you're going to hit like all these bits of friction along the way and then you're just not going to do it. And so in, in Motif, the goal is to make these like not think, not just possible, but like probable. Got it. Very cool. I know we're running up on time, but I wanted to ask you, and I, I've asked this to all my guests is, a lot of people are considering careers in uh, data analytics, data science, and engineering. Wonder if you have any tips, general tips for people who are looking to do a career change into this field, or perhaps their first first job out of college. Just any general advice you might have. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the the most important thing to me in my career has been um, intrinsic motivation, like feeling excited about the work and feeling like I get energy from the work. And I, I think as a person, like recognizing like this, the things that you do day to day that feel fulfilling and you feel like getting into a flow state where the time passes by really quickly and you feel really satisfied by the time you spent on it. 
Um, and that kind of introspection is really important because there's like, it, it helps you understand what kind of jobs you're likely to be happy doing. And it just happens that like that, that was the case for me with data work. Cause I just, I'm super curious. So I, I think like understanding what motivates you and thinking about the tasks that, that you like and why you like them is really important. And part of that is the domain that you work in, I think. So like thinking about domain knowledge as a, as a skill is, is actually like probably more important than technical skills in most cases. And I, and I really like appreciate domain experts. And I think like it, it's better to come from, come to a data problem with the domain expertise rather than a tool. So, so I think a lot of people in data science and analytics get really obsessed with tools and I'm building tools. So I, maybe I'm part of the culprit here, but, but I think that if you start with questions, you always get a better answer than if you start with tools and then just try to, try to go find use cases. So it's, maybe that sounds a little hypocritical, but I promise I can square that circle. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess we'll uh, continue to watch what you're doing over at Motif. And yeah, hopefully we'll get more more people to think the Motif way, I guess you could say. <laughs> thanks, Al. Yeah, I hope so too. Yeah, well, thanks again for your time, Sean. And yeah, looking forward to talking again. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm.